The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I am thankful as I stand here this morning prepared to preach. I feel like I've already been preached to. I've been encouraged in several ways already by you revealing to us your work. You showing us how you're leading your people even around the world. How you've been at work through people in our congregation here locally. How you've been speaking and, and seeking to encourage and upbuild and console. I'm just thankful. Father, you are good to us. You shepherd your people. I ask you, please continue to do that. Continue to lead us as a shepherd guides his often wandering and weary sheep. Would you continue to shepherd us, your people, leading us home? Look at this passage today, Lord, and in some ways recognize that it's similar to what we've seen before. It's just as over our heads as the last one was. Your word is continually a challenge to us. And so I pray that you would take what's here. And and Father, please, would you press it into our hearts in ways that are encouraging as well as challenging. That show us who you are. Who you mean for us to be. Please do a work here with your word in our midst to build this congregation and to build the individual people in it. To bring honor to your name in us and through us in the world around us. Would you please give clarity to, to me as I speak this morning? Help me to, to speak clearly, to speak accurately, clear away distractions. Spirit of God, would you Abide in this room in power. We need you in power to make things that are true and clear, to make them real and alive and to cause them to run. So Spirit of God, please lead our time here. Have your way with us and lift up the sun in front of our eyes to the glory of the Father. Open the word for us now and teach. I pray this in Christ's name and for the good of his people here. Amen. turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 6 where we continue to consider the theme of love in Jesus' great sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. We've already looked at the preparatory section of this sermon, the four Beatitudes and the four woes. Jesus spoke those to encourage his disciples as well as to warn the world. All All of the world, all of humanity in this world living life in pursuit of of its own values and its own goals, apart from God and His values and His goals, that that kind of life may seem attractive and profitable and fun and, and good in a dozen different ways. But as Jesus tells us and warns us, there is an end coming. We are to be encouraged and warned. Both there is an end coming in which the shoe will be on the other foot, tables will be turned, and those who are lowly and cast down will be lifted up. So be encouraged, a day of deliverance is coming. And those who are high and mighty will be cast down. Be warned, a day of judgment is coming. Those, those two perspectives, those, those twin perspectives of coming deliverance and coming judgment, Jesus lays that in front of us to set the context then for the heart of the sermon, which we, we dove into last week, where he begins to talk about love. That's what Jesus wants to plant in our minds, those two perspectives, to plant in our minds because that's how we are empowered to love our enemies. He's very clear that as Christians hold fast to Christ, because of Christ, the world will sour towards Christians. And the words he uses will will hate even and will exclude and will revile 
there will be opposition. And Jesus then says, those ones, uh, all kinds of less opposition too, but those ones, your enemies, love them. Love your enemies and do good to them. That is extreme. It's, it is high and extreme. And it's what the central part of this sermon is about. And we looked at just part of it last week. As we mentioned, 27 to 35 are all kind of one big section, but it's too long to deal with at once, so we broke it up into a couple different parts. But if you look at it, there's a command in 27 28, the same command in different words in 31, as we'll see this morning, and the same command at the end in verse 35. Three times he says essentially the same thing, and then in between gives us different illustrations or examples that kind of flesh it out. So we looked at the first part of it last week, but the second part this week is very similar. Be a lot of similarities. And it is, it is a high calling. He, he is clearly and repeatedly pressing this on us. It is very important to Jesus. He wants us, his people, to, to hear and to get. He's talking about discipleship and says, a key marker, disciples love. A big deal. That's so simple. A big deal. Disciples love. And disciples love like God loves, not just like the world loves. And that's our main point for this morning, in fact. Jesus calls us to love like God, not just like the world. I'm going to move towards that main point by making two observations from the second half of this passage, but I'm going to read the whole thing, starting in verse 27, because it does all hang together, and we want to hear the whole flow of it. So I'm going to read 27 to 35, but we'll be focusing on the second half. Hear the word of the Lord. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The word of the Lord. Two observations here from this instruction from Jesus. Here's the first. We are to love others thoughtfully, regardless of what they might do for us. Or to us. We're to love others thoughtfully, regardless of what they might do for us or to us. Verse 31, obviously where I begin, it's just a rephrasing, as I've said, of the, of the governing command of this section, love for our enemies. And Jesus, we have to remember, has the most difficult of all enemies in mind. His, his context here is of religious opponents. Those that are most difficult because there's no compromising with them. So that, that's his context, and everything beneath that would also be included. So there is wide application of what Jesus is saying to all areas in life. But we need to remember, he's calling us to opponents of the hardest sort and all others, which is why he uses the word just others. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Sometimes we call this phrase the golden rule. We've heard it, right? It's familiar to us, but let's be sure that we understand it. It's not a statement, a, a bit of instruction to us about 
how to get others to do something for us that we want. It's not think about what you would want done, do that, and then they'll be more likely to do it for you. It's not that. Nor, more importantly, are we supposed to read this very rigidly and very literally and very tightly. If, if we're too literal, if we're too tight on this, we distort it. And we miss either because we become too focused on ourselves and we do for them what we would want, or we're too focused on the others and do for them what they would want but something which they shouldn't have. Perhaps something destructive or even sinful. If we're too literal and too tight on this, we, we distort it and miss the point. Fundamentally, what he's getting at, in a common sense sort of way, is consideration. If you want to put a word on it, consideration. Jesus is trying to help us understand what he means when he talks about love other people. He, he says, first time through, love your enemies, do good to them. And we might ask, well, well, what do you mean by that? He says, well, stop and think about it. If you were in her shoes, what would you want in this situation? What would you need? What would it look like from that, from, from that place? What would be the necessary, needed, good, and right thing if you were in her shoes? Think about that and then do that. And it is a command. Do that. It's calling for action. It's the golden rule. So we're probably pretty familiar with that. But keep in mind, on Jesus' lips here, this is very different than how we often think of it. Because what's his context? Remember his context? He's talking about enemies. All others too, but he does not primarily, first and foremost, and only mean the random person at the supermarket or your otherwise nice spouse. Included? Yes. But included downstream, the first context is people who don't like you. People who are opposing you. That's the first group in mind as he, as he issues this command. Your enemy. Give thoughtful consideration. This is almost bizarre to say, isn't it? What? Give thoughtful consideration to what your enemy, what the opposer, what the persecutor, what the person who's against, what does that person need? And do that. Command. Do that. That's almost crazy. This makes sense. We use this all the time in our society to talk about people that we're around and that we're kind of okay with, but he's talking about people who don't like you. Put yourself in their shoes. Love them by thinking about what do they need? What would be good? What would I want if I was in that spot? It's crazy. Now, a couple of the necessary qualifiers, like we mentioned last week, I need to bring them up again. It does not call us to do sin or to aid sin. Obviously, Jesus doesn't want us to do that. And it doesn't keep us from physically protecting ourselves, necessarily. It doesn't keep us from calling the authorities. But there is a call here all throughout this section. There is a high call to self-denial. And as we mentioned last week, as soon as you move beyond the principle here, move into any specific situation, we immediately find a tension here between self-denial and self-protection. There's, a, there's an, an immediate wisdom issue in every single particular. And we can read the New Testament, as we mentioned. We can read about Paul and see Paul wrestling with that tension, sometimes choosing to protect, mentioning, I'm a Roman citizen, claiming that right and therefore protecting himself with it, and at other times, not. So what exactly we should do in any particular situation is a wisdom question. The point is, again, about our hearts. We are to be thoughtfully concerned for. In the heart. We are to have an attitude of love towards the point is not to just get rid of my stuff, not just to sacrifice. It's that for the sake of love. In my heart, what he's calling me to, what he's calling you to, 
a disposition of love. A thoughtful concern for. To contemplate what is the good that this other person actually needs and then regardless of what's in it for me, to be willing to lay aside what's in it for me, to lay aside my own rights in order to love them, to give to them what is needed. That's his consistent point about the willingness, the attitude of our own hearts. And it's what he again emphasizes in 32, 3, and 4. The examples that expand upon the command. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. In other words, I don't mean, what he's saying, consider your friends who love you. And what you would want for them, what you want them to do for you, then love them in that way. That's, that's nothing. That's how the sinful world works. That's nothing. No big deal. Same for doing good. Verse 33, sinners do good to those who do them good. And lending, sinners also lend to sinners to get back. No big deal. Now what exactly he means, that last example kind of helps us understand something. Helps flesh something out. Look at the lending. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Lending in that context, in a Jewish context, would have been about meeting the basic needs of life. It wouldn't, wouldn't have been about business or investing. And, according to the law, it wouldn't have had any interest. It wouldn't have been any lending for interest. So what does this lender that Jesus is talking about expect to receive back? What's he going to get back? This isn't a loan for investing, so there's no cut of the business. And he doesn't receive any interest. Oddly, if you read it just in the English, it might seem like he lends to get back the same amount. I lend you $100 in order to, and that's the language, there is purpose there. I lend $100 in order to get back $100. That doesn't make any sense. Who lends $100 to get back $100? You already had it. What's he getting at? He's talking about a time, you lend $100 now, but there's a time in the future when you might not have $100. And you're lending now, he's saying, this is how people work, you lend now to a person who might then become ingratiated to or, or capable of in the future when you have need, reciprocating. You scratch his back now, he scratches yours later. That's how the world works. Lending, expecting to receive at some point in the future. That's lending that appears to be about meeting your need, but is really what? Your need to meet my need. Same thing with doing good. I'm doing good to you, my friends, those who are good to me. And I'm loving you, these people who love me. That's how the world works. Jesus uses the word sinner there to describe the ordinary person, the non-Christian. That's how people work. Which carefully is not in itself totally wrong. It's just not enough. As I'm saying this, I don't mean to in any way, and Jesus is not meaning to in any way, criticize or insult every good thing you do for your friends. Every lending of money to people who might be able to repay you back. Any doing of good to those who also do good to you. That, that's not wrong. We should, in fact, praise and capitalize upon friendships. They are gifts from God. And when the non-Christian world shows us that kind of love, we should, we should commend it and we should say, yeah, sure, that's good, that's right. We can look at, can we not? We can look at non-Christian parents and can see love for their children and we should say, great, that's good. We can look at the non-Christian world and see good marriages. Husband loving wife, wife loving husband. 
And we should say, good, that's right. But the point is, that's not enough. That's loving loved ones. Love your enemies. He's got a totally different goal for us. A higher one. Not not to criticize that, but to rise above it. Love your enemies. All across the spectrum, difficult enemies down to people that you just don't like that much and don't connect with. Love them regardless of what they might do to you or for you. That's his calling. So what are we like? What are we like? Do we love with thoughtful concern for the other? Even the hard other who cannot and will not love you back. Take a concrete situation here. And, and I, I'm going to pick and I'm going to create an example that I don't mean to put too little or too much into. I don't mean to put too much into this and try to like get you to do this specific thing. I'm not trying to like make everybody go out and do this this afternoon. But on the other hand, this is so common that you could do this this afternoon. Or next week or whatever. Let me move away from the hardest of enemies just down to people like your next door neighbor that you don't connect with very well or somebody else in the congregation who's got a little bit of a different personality from you. You know who that is. Now, who do you invite over to dinner habitually? Habitually. I am not saying you can never invite over your friends. As I said, capitalize on friendships. They're gifts from God. But habitually. And does it move towards really only? I... I only invite over. I I only fellowship with, or if you prefer, hang out with, or connect with, spend time with, only. And never the person that's a little bit awkward, or the person who doesn't really deeply like me, or the person that I don't connect with that well. Do you find yourself never inviting such ones over? never seeking to do good to such ones, and only befriending your friends and only loving those who love you. I'm asking that just to try to make it concrete. As I said, I'm not trying to say, go out and find the person you least like this afternoon and buy them to lunch. That might be a little awkward because they might figure out, you don't like me because you just invited me to lunch. That could be awkward, right? But I don't want to put too little into that because you probably should do that. Or something like it. If if we're thinking about what this passage is about, it has a do so to them. It's just possible that the awkward person or the non-believing neighbor of yours doesn't ever get invited to anybody's house and doesn't ever find anybody doing well or doing good or being kind to them. It's just possible that if you were in their shoes, you would say, here I am alone again, and everybody else from church is at somebody's house for Thanksgiving, but not me. That shouldn't happen. But why does it? Because, I'll use me, when I consider that awkward person or that couple or that family, whatever, and I I think about an afternoon with them or an evening with them, and I'm thinking, that's going to be a lot of work and not a lot of fun. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. 
that's going to be awkward. The conversation's going to be like this all day long. We're going to try to figure out what to talk about. We don't know. We're going to say things, and we're going to find we repeatedly disagree. There's a reason that they're awkward. From my perspective, right? And I'm knowing that, and so I'm inclined to steer away. But what is that? What other than concern for me is that? It's totally concern for me. It is totally self-focused. It is totally... I will invite over someone if I can somehow convince myself that I will enjoy it. I don't think that's what he's calling us to. Let me say it differently. That's not what he's calling us to. He has something else, something different in mind. And I'm only talking about, I'm only talking to people who are in the church even and slightly awkward, or my next door neighbors that I talk to and don't really connect with. Jesus means, let's push that spectrum all the way to the end, even your enemies. Now, that may not lead to you inviting over people who want to kill you over to dinner. But it means thoughtful concern, what would be good to them. What would love them? What would bless them who curse me? He's got the whole spectrum in mind, and I'm only talking about this end of it, a relatively minor end of it. But we're bumping up against something there when we, when we look at the ones that are not lovely to us. We don't love them. Why is that? Because I'm, I'm really, my eyes are like this. I'm looking at it. I might love you for me. That's exactly what he's getting at. And calling us away from. And what overcomes that, notice this very carefully because it's, gonna, it's the tie into the next point. What overcomes that is not, do it. Do it differently. Okay, will you come over for dinner and I'll hate this all night. That doesn't, that, no, that doesn't work. Nor, this is what we usually do, I think, nor does it, I'll invite you over and I'm going to work really hard to find the pieces of you that I do like. That's still the same issue. I'm still looking. I'm, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. And that may be good hosting and hostessing. And so I encourage you, obviously you want to, you want to create a nice social environment that it has good conversations. So you might be trying to work conversations so that they are easier and, and flow more smoothly. Great, that's a good thing. But when we're doing that so that we can tolerate it, that's still about me. What helps us past, what, how we overcome our consistent, and I'm only talking about one end of the spectrum, our consistent avoidance of love of enemy, of thoughtful concern for what those we don't connect with need. What overcomes that is not just duty and not trying to find the actual things that we do enjoy. It's something else. What undoes that, what overcomes that barrier is the experience of pleasure and delight and reward for me that doesn't come from them. So you might have thought as I'm talking through all this that, that the looking at it for me is totally wrong. The problem is looking at it for me in you. Looking at it for me is from God. I'm made that way and that's the second point. What overcomes this problem that we have is not looking for pleasure and delight and good in the other person. It's looking up. Jesus could just tell us to do the right thing, but he is so kind. And he applies the scripture to himself also and he understands our frame and puts himself in our shoes and says, what do they need? 
They are made in my image. They need reasoning. And they are a people who have need for, by my creation, need for delight and need for pleasure and joy. So I'm going to reason with them and show them where pleasure and joy is found. He is kind to give us what we need. And so he gives us an argument. And it can be summarized like this. Here's the second point. We are to love like our Father in heaven in pursuit of what He will do for us. In pursuit of what He will do for us. That is in about as intentional as I can get in language. In pursuit of. We are chasing something. We are after something. The end of our passage reiterates for a third time the basic command, so love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Just summing it up. Love like this and your reward will be great. There's reward again. The Word. And if we think about it, he's been on this subject of reward through the whole sermon. That's where the Beatitudes and the woes put us. That's what, that's what set us up. You who now have the kingdom, you shall be satisfied. You shall laugh one day. He's talking about good that's coming to us from the very beginning. That's the context that he sets up. And then even in our passage today, before we get to this, this word reward here at the end, in each of those examples, 32, 33, 34, they each mentioned love like the world and then asked this rhetorical question, what benefit is that to you? What benefit is that to you? It's verbatim, same every time. What benefit is that to you? What benefit is that to you? What benefit is that to you? And the word benefit is literally the word most commonly translated, grace. And the fact that he asks the question, we, we might be tempted to reply, what benefit is that to me? Well, I get them to love me back. Duh. I, I do them good, they do me good. That's the benefit. And he says, no, no, I'm asking the question because I mean something else. I mean, what grace is that to you? Not from them. Of course, there'll be benefit from them. That's not what I'm talking about. What real grace is that to you? What benefit comes to you for being just like ordinary people? I know you'll get stuff from them. I know you can get like this. I'm talking about, does anything come like this if you live like the world? So he's got us thinking with this threefold repetition. That's a good question. What benefit? What benefit? What benefit? And then he tells us, here's reward. Don't love like that. Love like your Father in heaven in pursuit of chasing after reward. Which is a promise from Jesus that you have to stop and look at. And you should come, as you're reading through, you should come and whether we could bring the sermon right here to a full stop. And I would encourage you, maybe you write something in your notes like this. To love like this brings great reward. And then write yes and write no. Or maybe write true, false. And then circle one of them. Jesus said, to love like this brings great reward. That ain't true. That's false. He's wrong. And then you find yourself, I can't say that. But that's, that's what we're saying. We're, I'm trying to maybe make this little bitty practice a way of, of making visible to our eyes and, and almost tangible as you touch the pencil and write it on paper, trying to make visible and tangible our, our response when we resist the thoughtful concern for and the love of other enemies and even best people that we don't really connect with that well. All of that we, we resist and set aside because what we're saying is Jesus is wrong. He has misled me. 
I sit here over the dinner table for hours and find awkward, 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 awkward. Therefore, I know Jesus misled me. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He calls us to something. He puts a promise out in front of us and says, here, this kind of love brings you great reward. And we have to look at that and and evaluate yes or no. And brothers and sisters, that is what the life of faith is. All throughout the Bible, we see in in Christian language, we use things like, I walk by faith, I live by faith, not by sight, etc., Those phrases mean this. We put in front of us what the Word of God says, what the promise of God is, what Jesus' statement here is, and we say, there's a promise about what will come in the future. If I love like that, I will step into great reward. I stand here, I see it, I believe it, and then walk believing That's walking by faith. That's living by faith. I see the word. I see the promise. I reckon it true. I believe Jesus and walk. In this case, I love. I give thoughtful concern to my opposition. I seek to do good to those who don't do me good and never will. I seek to bless those who curse me and revile me and always will. This is what undoes the, the barrier at, at, when we're, we're drawn up short in front of the, the dinner invite to the person who's slightly awkward or maybe straight up uncomfortable. What gets me past that barrier is not thinking I am told to do it so I will and not thinking I will find some good in this person but thinking I believe the promise given from God that he will reward me when I walk. And so without seeing it, but seeing only the enemy, I will step forward and love, lay down my life on behalf of. That's the walk by faith that overcomes the barrier. And it gets me looking up. Gets me looking not to these ones, but that one to say, Reward, reward, reward. I believe you will. Please do. We are called to keep our eyes on God and His reward and to love those others before they are good to us and even if they are never going to be good to us. That is what God Himself is like, in fact. And this, this comes, the passage at this point comes to a, a blazing, centered focus because now we're not talking about just command and we're not talking about ethereal reward. We're talking about the nature of God held up in front of us. He says, For your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Sons of the Most High. He does not mean something only about men there. He's using language of that day. He doesn't mean anything about become Christians either. He's talking to Christians. He's using language of that day to say something that we can kind of catch with our our language today. He's the spitting image of His Father. What we mean by that is He looks just like Him. He's just like him. That's what Jesus is saying. And you will be the spitting image of your father because that's what your father's like. Your father in heaven is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Before they do him good and love and honor him, and even if they never do, he pours out common grace on all people's enemies included God indeed uniquely loves His own, to use the Bible's language, His elect. That's the language of the Bible. 
God indeed uniquely loves His own people, but He also truly and really and genuinely loves every single person, all of humanity, even enemies who revile Him and never, ever, ever will turn. He has a genuine and real love for every single individual. He loves the ungrateful who remain ungrateful and the evil who remain so. Because it is in the nature of God. God is indeed love. Your Father in heaven is a lover of people. Enemies alike. And he says, you are made to be the spitting image of me here walking the earth, to love like I do. This is how children of God act because he has given us new natures. And in your new nature, you want to be like him. It's your bent now. And in your new nature, you have eyes to see the promise and faith to believe the promise that Jesus will reward. He's given you new nature that inclines you to be like him and sees you and inclines you to believe him. And that is amazing because think about this. When it says God loves the ungrateful and the evil, oh, that was you. Do you realize this? God loves the ungrateful and the evil. Those who remain ungrateful and evil and those who remarkably, kindly, mercifully, He changes from being ungrateful to be grateful and those He changes from being evil to be righteous. Because God looked upon His enemies and did not consider, what can you do for me? But instead stood, not just conceptually, physically stood in our shoes, sent His Son to become man, doing what we needed. He sent His Son. The Father sent the Son who considered our needs above His own. Considered what it was, what required, what we needed. We needed righteousness and so He became righteous. We needed an atonement, so He died. We needed life forever and so He rose. And gave that to you regardless of what you would ever do for Him. While you were yet His enemies. He died for you. This is the Father. He works for you in great, great love. This is what He is like. That is what your Father is like. So when Jesus calls you, commands you, love your enemy, and do good to those who don't do good to you, and lend to those from whom you'll get nothing, he's saying, be like me. And a Christian in a new nature should say, yes, yes, yes. Thankful. Thankful. And believing that reward comes. What's the reward? Well, as I said before, the short answer is, I don't know. doesn't say. But there's a hint. There's a hint here in this joining that we would do, joining of the Father in loving like He loves, and joining of the Son in loving like He loves. There's a hint there we would be walking along a path with Him in what He is about. And perhaps that is rewarding a bit like this. Imagine two children of a father, an earthly father. Imagine two children of an earthly father who is an avid outdoorsman. He loves to hunt and fish and hike and camp and snowshoe and etc., etc. Everything, you name it, he does it. And he deeply loves these two kids of his. Deeply, equally, passionately. And one of those two kids becomes an avid outdoorsman. The other one doesn't. But one of them becomes an avid outdoorsman. What happens there? Well, every weekend, 
dad and one of the kids goes off outdoors. And together, they pitch a tent and they hunt and they go out onto the water and they turn over the rocks and they find the little bugs underneath of it to... And dad teaches son about here's, what, here's the bugs that are going to hatch and here's how we tie the fly and here's how you cast and here's how you look at the water. Uh, don't do that. You've got to do it like this. And he's teaching them right alongside of him. And together then they learn to fish. And then they come back and they enjoy that night the fish. Second son's at home. They enjoy the fish at the campsite. And then the next day they go out hunting and he says, here's how you stalk and here's how you set up a, a blind and here's you've got to watch them. They're going to come through here. And... and be careful to do that. And don't, uh, meanwhile, don't we just look at this? Isn't this beautiful? Shh, listen to that. Gloriously silent. The birds. You smell. It's wonderful. Other sons at home. He's there with him at the fire, in the tent, in the field, in the stream, enjoying the activity that the Father is, is strongly and deeply committed to and, and immensely knowledgeable about and really geeked over. And he can pass, pass on to his son all of his knowledge and all of his experience so that he equips the son. The son grows in this. And all of it is like this together because what's happening? Father's heart is flowing over onto son. He's experiencing him. And he will walk back into town, the spitting image of his father. The other son is not less loved. The other son just knows dad less. And has experienced in this day less and 50 years from now will have less to remember, tragically. One son would say, that was so rewarding last weekend. One son might not. I think something like that is what is implied in the we become spitting images of our Father and we receive reward. And back to back in the same sentence, walking with Him on the path of love, which is what He is, we experience reward. I think there's something in that. Now and forever. Now, Truth in advertising? I'm trying to understand the sentence there. Maybe I'm off a little bit. Again, like I said last week, if I'm off, I will fall back onto whatever the reward is, he knows how to give reward. It'll be good. I think it's something like this. We move through the world loving our enemies by faith walking with Jesus along the path He walks as He loves His enemies. And what happens there is we experience Him. We walk with Him while we're on the path of love. We draw strength and wisdom and insight from our Father in Heaven through Him. That's now. And then the greatest reward that is yet to come in heaven, we who are saved and shaped by, who become spitting images of this lover, we commune with Him as reborn lovers ourselves, changed more deeply, changed more deeply, more closely resembling Him. And forever then, we have not only the snapshots of the past and, and all the experiences of life on earth to remember with Him, but we experience Him forever going forward as new, as different, as more deeply conformed to Him. That is not at all to say, remember the analogy, that the son who stayed at home was less loved it is to say the son who walked out into the wilderness with him experienced more and will know it forever. He 
He filled us and he shaped us and he saved us and he sanctified us and made us lovers like him. And so we will be forever to the praise of his glorious grace. He does this in us. And with his power behind it, he can issue a promise that a command to love will be rewarded. Trust him. Love your enemies like God does, not like the world does. Let me pray. Father, will you help us? Because we all know that an evening with people who are difficult or people who are mean is hard. Blessing those who curse us is hard. Smiling to those who dislike us is hard. Humbling ourselves and laying down our own rights for the sake of the other is hard. So help us, Father. Will you father us, please? Mature us, please. Would you in spirit power shine a light on the promise of reward? Capture our imaginations with it. What's true from from my thinking, cause that to be cemented. What's not true, cause it to go away. But would you cause us to be captivated by the promise of reward and to believe and walk? Would you cause us, your people, to long to be like you, to long to reflect you in the world, to long to show you to those around us accurately and truly? promise to reward strengthen us with promise and empower us to love make us like you I pray thank you Lord amen thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City Utah feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84 one two one